You can open up your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. We're in chapter 2. If you're with us in upcoming weeks, that's probably where we're going to be unless some unforeseen things happen. Uh, We're probably going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I know some of you even have those scripture journals that we have out at the Resource Center. If you have one of those where you can take notes easier, you can pull that out. But we're going to be starting in Deuteronomy chapter 2 this morning. We're going to go through verse 25. We're going to start verse 1 into verse 25 today. Um, And I don't know what your all's attitude is towards Christmas. I know some people have very stern rules about you can't even talk about Christmas or play Christmas music till post-Thanksgiving or December 1st or something like that. But this year, I feel like we can have a little bit of a pass on that. I feel like 2020, we missed out on a bunch of Christmas-related things. And so I'm going to mention Christmas in a second, and it's barely in October. Lowe's has Christmas trees up and stuff, though, so I feel on okay footing to start talking about Christmas already October the 10th. Um, I don't know what your Christmases were like growing up. I hope that they were sweet. I hope that they were pleasant. I hope that you had family around. I know some of you did not. Um, And I don't know what uh, gift-giving rules or traditions that you all had. Um, My family, the Goodwin family growing up, had a basic custom that maybe some of you shared of waiting till Christmas morning to actually open our presents, especially from mom and dad. Uh, We wouldn't jump the gun and do anything early on Christmas Eve or, or earlier in the week. We always waited with great anticipation for Christmas morning itself. Uh, And like most of you, though, we also would do gatherings in advance of that, like with our cousins on this side of the family, maybe the night before, or with the aunts and uncles and grandpa on this side of the family a week before, things like that. And and one of the things I really appreciate about my parents back then and that I still really appreciate now is their generosity. Uh, With what the Lord has blessed them with, they sought to be very generous. They're some of the most intentional, especially my mom, well, my dad too, uh, some of the most intentional gift givers that I know. Uh, They put actually a lot of thought into what to buy and trying to get a present that this person's actually going to enjoy opening, that they're going to be excited about, thankful for. My mom puts great precision in how she wraps presents and things like that. And so what would happen each year as we would wait for our presents on Christmas morning, but we'd have these gatherings in advance, was we would get to see other people open our parents' presents right? We would get to see what mom and dad got for grandma and grandpa or what they got for cousin so-and-so or aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so. And And we would get to see uh, the the other people's excitement. Their faces light up when they got these gifts uh, from my mom and dad. And we were thankful for that. But as we were getting closer to Christmas, that year at least, which kids' minds are only thinking that year, uh, we hadn't yet received those gifts ourselves, right? We had seen other people be the recipients. We weren't yet the recipients of their generosity. And, uh, but as we would lay our heads down on Christmas Eve in our rooms and, and we'd be anticipating the next morning, I don't think my little five-year-old or 10-year-old brain or whatever could have quite articulated this this way, but I think there would have been the thought there, the reality there of something like this, that the logic would have worked something like this. If mom and dad gave such great gifts to them, what will they give us? Like if, if mom and dad have given such thought and intentionality and generosity to giving to uncle so-and-so and grandma and to, to our cousins, what are they going to give to us? Like we're their actual kids. Like uh, they don't even like some of these people sometimes and they give them these awesome things. What will, if they gave that to them, 
What will they give to us? And so their generosity that we got to see them give and show toward other people actually compelled us to have confidence of their, what their generosity towards us would be, right? Like we, because we saw how they gave to others, we had confidence of how they would give to us. And I, I mentioned that and get ahead to Christmas because I think what we're going to see something very similar to that in today's text. Uh, we're going to see Moses, the speaker and presumably the author of this text, we're going to see him point his nation, his large, large family, right? to their heavenly father's generosity that has been shown to other people. And, and with the things that he has given to them, the way that he has given to them, even outside of Israel, to help compel them as Israelites to trust what God will give to them. Uh, to think, man, if God has given that to them, what will he give to us? Like we can trust him, we can have confidence because we have seen him give to others. And I trust as we get to listen to this text today that the Holy Spirit will work something similar in us as the people of God here today, uh, that as we hear about how the Lord has provided to others, even those who aren't his children, uh, that we'll grow in our confidence of his provision for us as his children today and grow in our trust in his provision for the future. So we're going to read in just a moment Deuteronomy 1 all the way down to verse 25. But I know some of you have not been with us the first two weeks as we've gone through this book of the Bible. I'm not going to do this every Sunday, but I'm going to real briefly recap what Deuteronomy is and kind of where we're stepping into in the middle of a story. The book of Deuteronomy we talked about two Sundays ago is kind of like a farewell address of, of Moses to his his nation, to the nation of Israel that he's led for 40 years now uh, in the wilderness. Uh, and it's his farewell address to them. He knows he's about to die. They're about to finally go into the promised land, but he knows he's not going with them. And so he's given them this farewell address. But last Sunday we mentioned how if you look at the written form of Deuteronomy and what setting this address was given in, it was given and it was recorded in the context of a covenant renewal ceremony of all things. Like that God had established this covenant with Israel back at Mount Sinai 40 years before that. And now there's this new generation of mostly new people or some older folks uh, who are renewing that covenant. God's renewing that with them. And this Deuteronomy is kind of like a treaty of sorts. It would have been a common form in that time and day in the world, uh, in that area of the world, where there would be these treaties that would be written between a, a, a lord, like a, over, a ruler of sorts, and then the people who would own land underneath him. There would be these written agreements of how they would operate toward each other. And they always started those written agreements and Deuteronomy starts with telling some of the backstory of those people, like telling the backstory of the ruler and the people underneath him. And that's what we're reading these first couple weeks is in this written treaty of sorts between God and his people who are about to go into this land, we're reading some of their backstory that Moses told them that day as they were getting ready to finally go into the promised land. And so we're going to pick up Deuteronomy 2. He had started last week and what we saw recounting some of their history from 40 years before, how they had failed to go into the land and trusting the Lord to go into the land. And God had told them, turn and leave. Like, that's an oversimplification of the story. But turn and leave. You're going to be out in the wilderness 40 years. A whole generation is going to die off. What the history he's going to recount today to these people is going to be much more recent to them. It's going to be within the last, like, rememberable past to these people as God starts to finally direct this new generation back toward the promised land to to fight for it and to live in it. And so I'm going to read this whole text. This is a long chunk, okay? There's going to, but this is going to be the norm the next several months. There's some long texts that we're going to read. I'd encourage you as we read this, if yours is divided into three paragraphs, which I'm guessing most of yours 
are. See if you see a pattern develop in these paragraphs. There's repetition that is baked into this thing that I think you'll see if you look for it. That as God is steering, Moses is reminding them how God had steered them back toward the promised land. And they're going to essentially pass by three nations of people. Uh, and God's going to tell them, don't fight with them. Don't fight with them. Don't fight with them. And he's going to tell them why. And I, I, I would encourage you to look for patterns. And if you hear them, then you'll recognize them as we go back through it after I read it. And so let me read Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 through 25. Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. And for many days we traveled around Mount Seir. And the Lord said to me, You've been traveling around this mountain country long enough. Turn northward and command the people. You're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir. And they will be afraid of you, so be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on. Because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. You shall purchase food from them with money that you may eat, and you shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. So we went on, away from our brothers, the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, away from the Arabah road, from Eloth and Ezion-Geber. And we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And the Lord said to me, Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land for a possession. Because I have given Ar to the people of Lot for a possession. The Amim formerly lived there, a people great and many and as tall as the Anakim. Like the Anakim, they are also counted as Rephaim. But the Moabites call them Emim. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place, as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. Now, rise up and go over the brook Zered. So we went over the brook Zered, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years, until the entire generation, that is, the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. For indeed the hand of the Lord was against them to destroy them from the camp until they had perished. So as soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. And when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession because they have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. It is also counted as a land of Rephaim. Rephaim formerly lived there, but the Ammonites called them Zamzamim, a people great and many and tall as the Anakim. But the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place, as he did for the people of Esau, who lived in Seir, when he destroyed the Horites before them, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place even to this day. As for the Avim, who lived in the villages as far as Gaza, the Kaftarim, who came from Kaftor, destroyed them and settled in their place. Rise up, set on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. 
Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. This is the word of the Lord. There's a lot in there, huh? Uh, we're we're going to go back through some of this, not getting into all of it. Uh, there's tons of names in there, tons of backstory that uh, may not be able to be addressed during our time together, but I trust that the Lord will help us to see what is in here. If I was going to summarize what I think Moses was trying to tell the people uh, in this day, it'd be very similar to what I was talking about, about the Christmas gifts earlier and what us Goodwin kids were learning back then. I think what he was trying to tell the people of Israel on that moment and that scene was something like this, and we'll see how this fleshed out. If God gave this land to them, he'll give that land to us basically. If God gave this land to them, he will give that land to us. And I, I want to explain what, what I, I mean and what I think Moses was trying to get across and that's relevance even for us. So Moses reminds them as they're standing there in the plains of Moab, soon to go into the promised land, this new generation, he's reminding them that now four decades have passed, right? Since what he had just reminded them about what we read last week, 40 years have passed that he called it a wicked generation, right? That 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 generation that did not trust the Lord, that defied him in different ways, that they have now all passed away. The Lord's hand was against them, we read in this text, and that generation has died off. And these people have spent, this nation has spent 40 years. I think we can just hear that and can be lost. I haven't even been alive 40 years. This nation spent 40 years without a home living in the the wilderness, being led by the Lord, but not in the promised land. God had promised this land, they're not in it yet and haven't been in it for decades now as they've, since they've been freed as part of the Exodus. But God slowly, verse 14, said that he had like purged the camp essentially, that this older generation had died off. But in verse three, as we start today's text, he, Moses reminded them that God had told him fairly recently that it has been long enough. That the time has passed and now they're going to turn and head to the promised land. He tells them to turn northward and to head toward the land of promise. And I'm curious if you notice some of the patterns in here. There's, there's three distinct scenes that he's reminding them of as they made their way back up toward the promised land. I, I have a map that hopefully will be helpful I hope you can see some of this. Side note, it is hard to find maps that are helpful for texts like this. People don't preach through Deuteronomy a lot, so there's not just a multiplicity of maps. So I did my best. Hopefully you can see at least some of this. I want to show you what Moses is reminding them of history-wise and help you see a little bit of it uh, to understand what was going on. But there were three scenes in this text. They were probably broken up in paragraphs in your text. And basically what is happening as, as the people, the green area is the land of promise. It's Canaan that, that eventually they will live in that God has given them to a possess, for a possession. The area that they have been wandering in is kind of in the bottom left, the southwest part of this map. Uh, and now God, after those 40 years has passed, has told them to turn and head northward. And it's kind of, eventually they're going to head into that promise 
promised land not from the southwest, but they're going to come into it from the east. And God is moving them slowly that direction through these lands you see along the right-hand side, the land of Edom, the land of Moab, and the land of Ammon. Uh, and he references each of them and how they pass by those or are getting ready to pass by each of those as they get ready to go into the uh, promised land eventually. And so I want to show you in this text this pattern that develops so, uh, as they first head to Edom and then as they head to Moab and then as they head to Ammon. I, I want to point out to you five verses in particular and they're noted on the right hand side there. As they come to each of these successive peoples and their lands, God has this very distinct pattern that he develops with them, basically closing the door saying, don't fight with them. Door closed, don't fight with them. Don't fight with them. And I want to show you in the text where these are. So if you look at verse 5 first. This would have been as they are coming to the land of Edom, or they, he called them in verse, calls them in verse 4 the people of Esau. That's the same thing. Edom and the people of Esau, those are the same. And as they come to that land, verse 5, God told Moses and, and wanted him to tell them, the Israelites, do not contend with them. So very simple matter of fact. The previous generation did not obey the commands of God, right? But he gives them a command again says, don't fight with these people in Edom. Do not go try to battle against them. And then he tells them why, right? He says, for I will not give you any of their land, right? And he says, not even as much for like the footprint of land. I won't even give you any bit of it. Like do not try to fight against them, right? And this is... When you see the word Seir, that's kind of, and even Mount Seir, it's talking about a region that would have been down that direction, like in the southwest of Edom. Uh, he's saying that God is telling them, do not fight for that land. Don't try to contend against these people. I'm not going to give it to you. But then this is an important note that I think could be lost on us, and we could just read right past it. If you look at verse 5, he says, don't contend with them. I won't give you any of their land, not even enough for the sole of your foot to tread. Then look how verse 5 ends, because it's going to establish a pattern. He says, because, the reason I'm not going to give it to you, is because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And so he's saying, the reason I'm not giving it to you, and the reason you won't get it even if you try to get it, is because I've already given it, I've determined to give it to them. Like, I, I have chosen that, I've seen fit to give this land to them, right? Like my parents giving gifts to other people. I've given this land to them. Don't try to fight for it, Right? So he, he kind of closes that door, says, don't fight with them. Then they continue on their journey, and we have to kind of to, to hover over this. We can't get way down into the weeds. But they continue in their journey up along the eastern uh, side of this map, to, and they come to the people of Moab. And God says something very similar to them again if you look at verse 9, right? So actually verse 8 ended by saying that we turned and went in the direction of the wilderness of Moab. And at verse 9, Moses is reminding them of what God had said to him. He said that the Lord said to me, this will sound very similar, right, to verse 5. Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle, for I will not give you any of their land for a possession. So don't fight with them. I'm not giving you that land. But then he gives this explanation again. The end of verse 9, he says, the reason I'm not going to give it to you is because I have given R to the people of Lot for a possession. So he's saying, do not fight them. Don't try to take this land. I've already given it to someone else. I've given it to the Moabites. It's, it's not yours. Like, I've seen fit to give it to them. And so he forbids fighting against them. 
And then uh, the third and, and final scene where he is telling them, do not contend with these people is against the Ammonites. And you see that in verse 19, right? And so they're the kind of goldish, yellowish color on the map. As they are eventually getting up towards the land of the Ammonites, God says this to them. When, verse 19, when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them. This sounds familiar, right? For I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession. Why? Because I have given it to the sons of Lot as a possession. So again, you, you see the repetition? He's saying, don't fight these people. Don't fight these people. Don't fight these people. Even if you do, you're not going to get the land. And the reason I'm telling you this, the reason I'm forbidding it and refusing to give it to you is because I've already given it to someone else. I've already given it to other peoples, other nations. And so the, the, the forbidding of fighting wasn't based on just pragmatic like warfare, right? It wasn't because you have less people, you're going to get destroyed. Or you guys aren't good soldiers, you will lose to them. It was, it was purely the logic given, the prohibition of fighting was because I have given it to someone else. I have given this land to someone else. And there's an important theme here. This has huge significance. This whole section, we could just skip over, be tempted to skip over, has huge significance for the Israelites and for us in a few ways. I want to point out a few ways that this has significance. First, I would note that this message of God giving land to these people and giving land to those people and giving land to these people would have at minimum been teaching this new generation of Israelites that our God is the God of everyone. Like, in that world, in that day and age, people thought, like, they had these local gods who would, like, rule over their land, and if they somehow took over new territories because their God was conquering, their God was strong, and other people's gods were weak. And that's how they viewed their gods, their, their deities. But in this text, we're seeing this reminder from God to his people and from Moses to his people, God is the God of gods. If there are no other gods. He is the God of all people, all land, every inch of this planet is ruled and run by our God. He is the only one that there is. Even the land of Edom and the land of Moab and the land of Ammon, those lands belong to Yahweh. They belong to our God, not to the so-called gods of these people. Right? And if they have it, it's because our God has given it to them. Right? He's in charge of all things. And this would have been an encouragement as they hear this backstory, not just of their history, but of the history of Ammon and Moab and Edom. It would have been an encouragement, I think, for them to start to realize God is sovereign over all of history. Not even just the present moments, but even the backstories of these nations, of how they got their land, how they were able to conquer it, was not by fate. It wasn't by chance. It was because God, the God, the only God that there is, saw fit to give it to them. He controls all the pieces on the chessboard, right? He is in charge of all things throughout all of history. In Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul famously said this as part of a sermon that he gave uh, thousands of years after this. He, he said that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live, all, live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Uh, God is in charge of everything, everyone, every nation, no matter how small and insignificant, no matter how huge and powerful, God sees fit. And God is in control of who has what and who succeeds and who fails. God is in charge of it all. He is sovereign over all. And this would have reminded the people, and it should remind us of that. But what is fascinating is that in God's sovereignty, 
He had given land to people who were not his people, right? Like God had seen fit to give land to Edom. God had seen fit to give land to Moab. God had seen fit to give land to Ammon. Even some of his enemies, people who were opposed to him, he gave land to them. He entrusted this piece of territory to them. And it's fascinating, some of the things that may be in parentheses in your text, like verse 20 to 23, where I'm trying to say Zamzamim and Rephaim and things like that. And those statements that could feel like, what in the world is that about? Like, why is he including all this information? What Moses is reminding these people who are about to go face giants themselves, right? Who are about to go into a land that their grandmas and grandpas were scared of because there's giants in the land. When Moses is recounting the history of these lands, Edom, Moab, and Ammon, he's recounting, and I don't have time to get into all of it, but that in those lands there used to be giants. And God gave Edom victory over them. And God gave Moab victory over the ones that were there. And God gave Ammon victory over the the giants that had lived in their land. He, He references in verse 12 and 22 how in that southern land there had been these people called the Horites who were these gigantic people previously. In the land of Moab, you see verse 10 and 11, he called them said that they call them the Amim, these giants who had lived in their land. And then in verse 20, he talks about the Ammonites and how giants had used to live in their land. And he uses the terms Rephaim and the Zamzamim, which is my favorite name of them. He says that they had had giants there. But notice a couple times, especially, look at verse 21 and 22. He's talking about some of these giants that lived in the land of Ammon. And he, he, the Zamzamim, and he calls them a people great and many, as tall as the Anakim. Then note this, he says, but the Lord destroyed them before the Ammonites, and they dispossessed them and settled in their place. It's not just that the Ammonites were strong and took over these people, but Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of God, had put to death the giants in the land of Ammon as he gave land to people who aren't even his people. Like he was in charge of all of that history, all of that backstory, giving land to who he wanted to give land to and removing all obstacles to that, right? He's done that for these other three nations and Moses is reminding them of that, right? But this text ends, this is a, a next slide, the one other slide I have today, which there's an exception right at the very end of today's text that I want you to note. Because he's told them, don't fight these people. I've given land to them. I've, I've made sure they live there. They have that as a dwelling place. But then at the very end of today's text, if you look at verse 24, after he's shut all these three doors, he's going to tell them about this king named Sihon, uh, who has this land uh, near the promised land they're ultimately going to go into. And if you look at verse 24 after he's been saying no 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 finally he tells them yes in verse 24 he says to them rise up set out on your journey and go over the valley of the Arnon then hear this he says behold I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite king of Heshbon and his land begin to take possession and contend with him in battle and so he is saying guess what Israelites There is land that I'm giving to you. There is land that I have saw fit to give to you in these days ahead. And it's going to start with the land of Sihon here. I've allotted to give that to you. Now it's time to go fight against him. And we're going to read next week about how they actually did that. Uh, But this is so important because he's wanting them to see 
and to grow in their confidence. Because the people who have heard this have already actually defeated Sihon. He's just reminding them of how they just recently beat them. But now they're about to go into the green territory, this land full of giants and huge cities. And what Moses is wanting to remind them is that if God, that again, that statement, if God has given these people this land, and he has told us he's giving us that land, we can trust him to do it. Like if he has defeated giants, an entire nation of people, for people who aren't even his own possession, like we who are his treasured possession, he's told us he's going to give this. Like we can trust him to go in and we can fight for it and we can trust that he will give it to us, right? It's an argument from lesser to greater. If he gave it to them, imagine and trust of what he's going to give to us. And this is so important for us as God's people even today, I would say. Because we need, as the people of God, to have confidence of what God will provide for his children in the future, right? Like, we, we are a people who live, if we are Christians, we are people who live outside of the land that will ultimately be our resting place, right? This world isn't our home, right? We have a resting place that Christ has gained for us, that Christ has purchased for us on the cross of, of being in heaven, and then someday as heaven and earth merge in this new earth of living in that land forever, like, we're not in our promised land yet. And we need to have confidence that God will deliver on that promise. That God will actually take us there. That God actually will bring us into that land, right? We need to have confidence in the future provision of God. And Christ has gained that for us. Like, he didn't just gain us forgiveness in the here and now. He has gained us a homeland, an eternal place of rest. That's way better than Canaan. He has gained that for us by his death upon the cross, taking our sin, our guilt that should have kept us away from God. He has gained us a homeland that we will live in forever if we're united with him by faith. But we don't yet possess it, do we? Like, we're not yet in it. We, we haven't entered into that final rest. We sing a song here sometimes called Christ Our Glory that I love to sing. And one of the lines says that our rest is in heaven, our rest is not here. And so we live as a people on the boundary, as a people outside of the land that we will dwell in someday. And we need to trust that the Lord will indeed bring us home. That through the work of Christ, through his faithfulness, he will indeed bring us home. It's as if Christ has purchased, I was thinking of this with Christmas presents. It's as if Christ, not as if, this is true. If we are believers, Christ has already purchased that homeland for us. The price has already been paid, but we've not yet fully opened it, right? We've not yet fully entered into it, but we know it's been purchased. Like I knew when I would put my head down on Christmas Eve, mom and dad already bought the presents. I don't know what they are yet, um, but I know they're coming in the morning. With us and with the Lord, we know what's already been purchased for us. Not just that he got us something, he's told us what he bought for us, that it's this place of eternal rest, this new earth even someday. We, it has been purchased for us, but we've yet to fully open it and receive it ourselves. Right? And so this should be encouraging for us to hear and, and to remember as we look around and see the things God has provided in this life already, not just for his children, but even for others, to know he is in charge of everything. Every dollar that's in every person's bank account, every acre or lack thereof that they have, every, every gift that he gives is a reminder to us that he's sovereign over all. And we can remember that we are his treasured possession. Like we belong to him. And if he gives these good gifts to other people, how much more can we trust that he will give us the gift of our eternal rest? As an aside on this front, before I point out one other thing in this text, 
I think from this text, we should remember that we are not called in this day and in this time to fight every fight. Like, in there, these lands were not necessarily like pleasant towards Yahweh and like following his law, but God said, don't fight them. Don't fight them. Don't fight them. Like, there is a fight I want you to fight. I'm going to tell you where it is. I think sometimes as Christians living outside of our place, our eternal homeland, we want to fix everything right now. Like, we, we have no place or category of how God could allow evil people to rule. How God could allow messed up things to happen in life. But this scene is a reminder to us, and a picture for us, that we're not called to fight every fight. We're not called to put out every fire we can trust. Not that we should be cowards and steer clear of them, but we fight where God calls us to fight. We don't seek out fights with people unnecessarily and groups unnecessarily and imagine that we can just fix everything. We trust the Lord's sovereignty. We fight the fights that he tells us to, and we refrain typically from the ones he has not. That, told us not, that he has not told us to fight, right? If he forbids something, don't fight it. But if, it, if he doesn't speak to it, I think we should have a slowness to just pick fights as people of God. This said, I want to point out one other thing in this text, and this is hugely significant. This is the most important part. When we are outside of the promised land, outside of heaven, outside of the new earth, it can be the present tense. I mean, we know what's coming in the future. The present tense can be really confusing and frustrating. When we see that God has given, as they passed by these lands, God had already given Edom a land. Hadn't yet given Israel. He had already given Moab a land. Israelites still living in tents. He'd already given Ammon a land, right? Had still not, the Israelites had not yet received that from their Lord. And the same can be true in us as we look around at the world and we see sometimes people who are not people of God, who are not united with Christ, we see them prospering. We see, like, my, I don't even have a home. And these pagan people sometimes are given these mansions. And I, I'm seeking to follow the Lord, and my health is just corroding and deteriorating. And this guy who doesn't love the Lord at all, as healthy as an ox, is going to live till he's 100. Like, what in the world? Like, it can be super perplexing to us when we look at our own circumstances, and then we see the circumstances of people who are not even the people of God. It can be tempting to be confused and perplexed and frustrated with God. And I want to point out one thing to you from this text today. Because Moses in this text, and in God's kindness, he reminds them not just of what they don't have yet, but what they do have, right? And I, I want to point you uh, to verses 6 and 7. In verse 6 and 7, he, he's talking about this first land they're going to come up to. And he, for, in verse 6, he's going to talk about how God has blessed them materially. He says, you'll be able to purchase food from them with money that you may eat. You shall also buy water from them with money that you may drink. For the Lord God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. Uh, so he, I don't know what that looks like, how they were able to get money. We don't, we're not privy to all that information, but God had blessed them. They presumably had cattle and things that they were able to buy and sell and trade. Uh, but he has blessed them materially and, and uh, economically, right? As they get closer and closer to the land, he provided manna for them for four decades, right? Like they, they have been blessed materially. But then in verse 7, this is so important because he wants them to remember what they do have is infinitely greater and more important than what they don't have. And in verse 7, he continues, he says, He knows you're going through this great wilderness. Then hear this glorious news. 
these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Did you hear that? Like these 40 years, yeah, you've been living in tents. Yeah, you've had to pick up bread off the ground, this weird stuff, you don't even know what it is. Like you, you, you pass by these people who have homelands when you don't. But the Lord, your God, has been with you. Right? The Lord, your God, has been with you through it all. And this is so important because Jesus has purchased us an eternal homeland, right? We, we talked about that. He has already purchased heaven for us, purchased the new earth for us if we're united with him by faith. He has purchased that for us. We can bank on that. We can trust and know that that's coming. But he has purchased more than that for us. He has purchased us God himself, right? It, not just a place to live, but a person to be reconciled to. Like he, he has purchased us God's favor, God's presence that we don't deserve, that we actually undeserve. By his death on the cross, he has actually gained us God himself. We, and we can enjoy that now, right? Like heaven is still to come. New earth is still to come. Presence of God is now. Like God dwells with his people now who are united with Christ by faith, right? And so even when we have pain, even when we have lack, even when we're hurting, when we feel abandoned by people, when we have suffering in our life, when we have such sorrow in our life, if we're united with Christ, the Lord is with us now. And that is better than health. That is better than money. That is better than a husband. That is better than a wife. That is better than children. That is better than a job. That is better than anything. And it doesn't even hold a candle. We get God because of Jesus and what he has done for us. And God takes up residence in us as individuals and us as a church by his spirit. We get to enjoy that now. And so when our circumstances deteriorate, when we have bleak things happen to us, I would encourage us to remember our company more than our circumstance, right? We have God with us. Jesus is in heaven, but by his spirit, he dwells with us as Christians and with us as a church. And this should teach us when we have lack, when we have things that corrode, it should teach us to temper our longings for the things of this world to not set our hope and our joy and our happiness just on the things of this earth, right? You read books like Ecclesiastes. That will teach you that. that. That the things of this earth that we try to find happiness and security in are like sand going through our fingers. They are vain pursuits to look for stability and happiness. We're going to sing in just a moment that the, when we look in, upon the face of Jesus and remember that he is with us, that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Right? That, that we don't have to have the things of this earth. And when we are tempted to covet what other people have, when we're tempted to covet the Moabs and the Am, Ammonites uh, and the Edomites of, of our day, when we're tempted to covet what they have, it is vital that we remember that what we have is infinitely better. Right? Someday they will covet what we have. And that will be the day that matters. Uh, that, that we will have God himself forever. We don't need to covet the possessions and the pleasures of this world because we have God himself. And we, even when good gifts are withheld from us, when we're living in tents, when we have sickness, when we have death knock on our door, when we face it ourselves someday, we can have confidence that we have the greatest gift of all. We have God himself. We've been reconciled to him. And God has not promised me he has not promised you, even if you're his child, he has not promised you a long life. 
He has not promised you a big bank account. He has not promised you a job that you love. He has not promised you a spouse. He has not promised us a secure nation. He has not promised us secure anything in this world. He has promised us of his presence with us. And he has promised us our eternal place of rest. And so when we feel the wildernessy nature of our life, I would say it this way, and God referred to himself as Yahweh in this text, that the wilderness with Yahweh is better than Canaan without him, right? Like that, that when you're in the wilderness and you feel the wildernessy nature of your life, if you're a Christian, you have God with you. Someday you'll get Canaan and God, you'll still have God with you. But right now, even in the wilderness, you have God with you. And that is gloriously good news. And it's all because Christ has bought it for you. Someday, I, I talked about how I laid my head down on Christmas Eve, confident of what would come Christmas morning. Someday, each of us, and we may know when it is, we may not, someday each of us is going to lay our head down and close our eyes in death. Right? Not fully yet having seen heaven. Not yet fully experiencing the pleasures that will await us. Right? But when we lay our heads down in death, just like I had confident expectation of what I was going to open up the next morning when my eyes open, we can have confidence that when our eyes close in death, that when they open again, those gifts that God has promised us are going to start being received and enjoyed right that very moment, right? And we can even in death, we can lay our heads down in confidence because we've seen what he gives to others. And we've heard what he promised. We can have confidence that we will be with him and that we will be with him forever. We have already received the greatest gift of all. I want to pray for us. I want to invite the worship team to come forward. We're going to sing a song together uh, and then we'll be dismissed. But thank you for listening. Father in heaven, uh, we, even as your reconciled people, are, are people in exile, people outside of the land, outside of the eternal home that you have bought for us. God, we pray in our waiting, we pray in our even observing of what you give to others in this life that we may not covet what they have, but that we would rejoice in who we have, that we've been reconciled to you, that we get to know your presence now and forever. God, may you help us to trust you more, trust your provision. We pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.